Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the birthplace of Andy Richter. Did you know that? Ooh. Oh, I don't know that. Fancy. Very exciting. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM and streaming 24-7 at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Blessings. Coming up in today's show, we've got a special holiday gift for our listeners. Fan favorite and actual friend of the show, Mr. Ed Brayton, will be joining us in just a few. Also, some God Thinks Like You and a polyatheism, looking at the real reason for the season, along with a stranger than fiction. But first, some news. Coming up here in the United States in this next um, session of the Supreme Court of the United States, we have um, some big cases coming up mm-hmm. dealing um, particularly here with gay rights issues. The first is Prop 8 in California, which was the proposition um, that passed in California to ban gay marriage as um, similar propositions have passed in other states, including here in Michigan. Um, and the Supreme Court is looking at um, the challenge to that. Of course, the um, the appellate court – what was it? Um, I'm, for, I'm forgetting the name of the judge here um, – said that uh, Prop 8 was unconstitutional because it um, denied people rights. He's right. Yeah, but he was um, gay, so he couldn't really be objective. Exactly. <laughs> and that is the argument that we heard from the Christian right. Oh, was it Judge Vaughn? Um, recused Judge Vaughn. Because you're gay. Because when yes. I first scanned the headlines, I thought, Vince Vaughn, is is he gay or yeah. a judge now? What is no. it? That's why black judges can never hear cases dealing with black people either. <laughs> um, so that's going to the Supreme Court. Also, the Defense of Marriage Act – um, or DOMA, as it's called, is going to the Supreme Court, and that will uh, decide whether or not the federal government can um, deny rights to uh, same-sex couples that they give to opposite-sex couples. Yeah, 1996. Do, do they have to honor mm-hmm. the states? Do they have to honor the states' uh, decision to marry people as well? Right. Another uh, Bill Clinton enacted law, right? That yeah. that horrible liberal Bill Clinton who um, was no real friend to the gays in a lot of ways. That and uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell right, were right. both under uh, his purview. Now, my understanding is this is a bit of a shocker that they're deciding to take up these cases. I it thought is. that they were reluctant, that they were constantly kicking the can on these types of issues. And then mm-hmm. suddenly they want to take me, up yeah, two of the biggest – 
I get a little nervous about that because it's like, do they? Yeah. Do I? Do I sense that they're going to try to as quickly as possible try to nail down some aspect of conservative law before mm-hmm. they fade into the you know? Right, history? because we have uh, we have probably four Supreme Court justices who will be retiring within the next four years. Um, so they would be, really that many? Yeah, wow, it's huge. Now that is oh god, mean, sooner rather than later. Right? Sooner rather Except than that later. is no, largely the going to be liberal, the liberal justices. Oh no, no, um, no! It well, is still the liberal and swing votes. Probably uh, Ginsburg and Breyer, maybe oh, certainly. and Kennedy. Kennedy yeah, hmm. um, oh, dear. I, I feel like there's one other too, but. Uh, so it's a big shift, um, and of course that would leave Obama the opportunity to appoint new justices. Um, hopefully, they turn out to be um, a good balance to the ultra conservatives that we have with Alito and Scalia and Thomas. Um, Roberts is just slightly on the edge because he's a he's a weirdo in some ways. Um, <laughs> But we also – I mean he's he's very conservative. He's constantly being alienated from his conservative exactly, base yes. because of his unorthodox rulings. Yes. Um, but it's interesting because um, gay marriage is a big issue with the Catholic Church. I'm not sure if you're aware of that out there. Oh, wow. And um, the Supreme Court that? is majority Catholic right now, even amongst some of the, the liberal wing of the Supreme Court. So it will be interesting to see if they – um, follow the church's teaching, which yeah. is absolutely not, no excuses, um, or if they go with what's actually right. Now, it, it, and I, I can say that, I, I feel no qualms about saying that. This is something that if the Supreme Court decides against gay marriage, they will be on the wrong side of history. Um, this will be humiliating for them and, quite frankly, for us at this point in history. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, to know that uh, we're right on the cusp of being able to fix things and um, because of the Catholic Church or because of conservative ideology or what have you, um, we failed. Everyone sees the writing on the wall. It's going to happen. It's over for the anti-gay bigots because popular opinion has changed. It's just a shame that they're going to drag their feet and draw this out as long as possible so that more misery can happen. It was over once Glee aired. (laughs) (laughs) After Um, that point, it was inevitable. They all just couldn't help but love that show. So it will – I mean it will be interesting because they may – this may go in the right direction. Um, It's it's a little scary because part of me um, and and a lot of people are saying, oh, this might be too soon. But it's also like not nearly soon enough. Um, in the same regard. So um, well, it'll be interesting. I, I think I'm, I'm probably way off base here, but I could suggest another alternative maybe. Uh, this, is, this is my wishful thinking side. I've noticed that since the election, conservatives are jettisoning. You know, for example, the, a lot of attention has been paid to how uh, Republicans suddenly woke up to the fact that they can't win elections without mm. the Hispanic vote. Right. And, so, and women and anyone right, else. Right. Yeah. And so you have a lot of conservatives jumping ship on immigration and everything else. Well, and Maybe then you have the libertarian wing when it comes to uh, drugs and so forth. And there, that's, yeah. There have to be a sizable proportion yeah. of Republicans who are like this gay rights wedge issue is not working as yeah. a wedge issue. Why don't we just get this millstone from around Abortion isn't working as a wedge issue either, yeah. but they're not stopping that one well, anytime uh, soon. Abortion is, is so such a morally loaded, way more morally loaded, I think, than 
yeah. Yeah. homosexuality yeah. is. Although I think, I think some some would disagree. Um, Above all the well, immigration I, yeah, issues, I disagree. You know. I don't think it's as as morally important. Uh, no, but, but I'm saying there but, are some people who yes. do think they are yeah. e- equivalent, um, which is well, kind anyways, of horrifying. I'm not saying this is most likely to happen. I'm yeah. just hoping that maybe, maybe on the right, there are some people saying, "Let's just get rid of this." Yeah, you know, let's yeah. forget this embarrassing chapter ever happened. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it seems a possibility. Um, we'll see. Now, um, there's another um, gay rights issue, <laughs> kind of, that's going to the Supreme Court as well. That's a little bit lower profile than those. Um, also um, focused on California, where earlier this year, I believe, um, they enacted a law that said um, you could not um, uh, use these uh, gay reparative Therapies, right? You could not. Um, let me find the actual text here. They enacted a law prohibiting state licensed counselors from practicing a therapy that purports to help gay minors uh, become heterosexual. Um, and um, just recently, a federal judge um, blocked the enacting of that law. Um, because one of these uh, gay conversion therapists uh, took it to court. Yeah, this is uh, it's interesting because it does uh, show the uh, it does raise the broader question, which is interesting to me, being a psychologist. Is what is therapy? Is it a medical practice or does it contain elements of speech? Mm-hmm. That is, if it is a, a licensed pract- a product that the state licensed, then the state has an interest in saying this is correct. This is you know. Voodoo, this works, this doesn't. But if it's a viewpoint that's being expressed, so in this case, you know, most right. people we're, that are probably listening to us don't like the viewpoint, but they're like, uh, if there's judges ruling that counselors cannot mention that conversion therapy is legitimate, right. um, then, then it's like a, it falls under like a free speech heading where you can't, are you suppressing the free speech of the counselor? So the debate in this case is, is, uh, a counselor who says, yes, uh, we're going to change your homosexuality because it's wrong or it's destructive. Mm-hmm. Is that a medical sort of like a, analogy or is it speech? Well, what would be wrong with, say, not licensing individuals who use pseudo oh, You can always do that. I mm-hmm. mean, of uh, anybody could call themselves a therapist right. and not have to be licensed. You, you know, right. uh, even me. Uh, but uh, once you, they are licensed and they are. Yes, once you say I'm a licensed things, is it still psychologist or a social worker, then you have to, then yeah. the state kicks in because it's a, it's a well, license. Well, can, can a licensed doctor recommend homeopathic remedies? Because that's also uh, a form of um, right, right. practice that's been proven to be completely worthless. Right, but there's no law saying that they're illegal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and at least in this case with this therapy, they were that is what the law was trying to achieve. Right. Well, um, and then I guess we could say, yeah, well, I, I should see it the be parallel illegal? issue. Yeah. Um, should it be illegal to offer quack remedies? Um, should those and the argument. Um, Maybe yes, maybe no. It could be a way to stop innovative treatments. I mean, b- believe well, me, I'm not saying too. pray the gay away as an innovative <laughs> treatment, but but you could you could see a, a kind of uh, threat to new and upcoming uh, and therapies. And that's always the fear. But at the same time, then you know, uh, what is the point of licensing and regulation and standards if we're going to just let anything fly? Right. If you exactly. can, if you can test it and you can prove its effectiveness. Then it's regulated by the FDA and and so forth. So um, shouldn't that 
maybe be the standard for medical practice, whether it's psychiatric or you know physical? Yeah, and then, and then it, since we do have some documentation that the therapy itself is not only that it doesn't work, but that it's actually harmful, there are mm. some studies out there showing that people yep. who are in conversion therapy have often been worse off. It's the term is iatrogenic; they're harmed more by the supposed treatment than they would have been before because they try and try and try to change. Right. It makes them feel like crap because they're still gay, obviously, and that uh, that the therapy is actually detrimental in that respect. Mm-hmm. Well, so it'll be interesting to see how that one uh, shakes out in the uh, Supreme Court as well. Um, Wasn't joining the Catholic priesthood the original version of conversion therapy? <laughs> With equal, equally effective results too. Uh, speaking of the Catholic clergy, um, uh, Pope uh, Joey Ratz has a book that has come out recently where he makes some uh, possibly fairly controversial claims. Not, not weirdly enough, not claims that we would disagree yeah, with yeah, in yeah. a lot of ways. Not controversial enough, yeah. in my opinion. Yes, uh, the Pope is the newest warrior enlisted in the war against Christmas or whatever they call that, the war on Christmas. Mm -hmm. He's written a book called The Infancy Narratives, Jesus of Nazareth that was published uh, this past November. It does take a critical look at the Christmas story. But uh, yeah. the Christmas story as we've been told it, yeah, as, as is popularized and on Christmas cards or in Christmas carols With and all With Charlie Brown and whatnot? Uh, as far as the, the idea of, OK, you have the nativity scene where everybody goes up to the stable. Mm-hmm. Jesus is in the manger. Uh, you have all the shepherds coming and, and the angels singing carols. And the star and the uh, – yeah. yeah. Hanging the, on a string. Little them. drummer boy, all that barnyard animals have come uh, to to witness the birth of the king, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of uh, – you have Frankenstein and some guy named Murr just show up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, Murr, what is that? It's a bomb. A bomb to a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, Anyways, the Pope is critical of some of these traditions. We're not going to find this scandalous at all. This is just, you know, crack open your Bible and read what's in it and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he uh, he challenges certain things like Jesus wasn't necessarily born in a stable. It says he was laying in a major, but right. uh, looking at the area of Bethlehem, it's, it's quite likely that this was in a cave somewhere. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Uh, that there's no there's no proof that uh, that there were or there's no well, there's no proof that it happened at yeah, all. Yeah, Let's yeah, be yeah. clear on that. I, point I'm sorry, first. I walked into the no proof line <laughs> of inquiry. Uh, I'll, I'll have to back down off of that. There's no evidence from the Bible itself mm-hmm. that. Any animals were present there. So, for example, he says that um, that was later later Christian tradition right. threw that in to try to show even the animals, you know, even the animals recognized that this was the Savior, but it's not actually in the Bible. Right. Things like angels probably didn't sing those carols. They were probably spoken, you know, like – <laughs> really challenging stuff to the face. So really, really, uh, he's addressing Christmas carols. Yeah, is what he's yeah. doing. Yeah, or uh, I think maybe maybe one that would be a little scandalous to people who view the the Bible as uh, historical might be that he recognizes King Herod died in four BC. Yeah, the dating mm-hmm. thing. And that he the dating, was all that's that the dating scheme is on. That is, yeah. uh, but that, <laughs> I mean, even that doesn't directly contradict scriptures, but it's more closely associated with a church tradition right, that people right. wouldn't want to reject. He, he, and that's interesting because that's 
very historically clear. When, yeah, when yeah. Herod lived and Herod died, and for now, for the the Pope to that's finally say, "That's not a scandal for yeah, anyone." That's, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, does he? Um, uh, well, I don't know if I ever obviously read the book, but does he? The title imp- implies that he does the infancy narrative critique. Now, there's these other books floating around where clearly, what you know, the gospel, the other authors other than the canonical gospels have tried to fill in Jesus' time yeah. on Earth before he was. Baptized by John the Baptist, or even twelve, I think Luke was the first time we see him when he appears with the scholars in the temple. Right. But there's all these other infancy narratives where, like, he does miracles as a baby, or like mm-hmm. has a bird that's dead and brings it back to life, or like Joseph is working or on the his opposite, carpentry, curses where, things to death. Yeah, that's right. He yeah. Um, he extends boards on Joseph's carpentry to make them fit. There's I forget which one it is. There's Jesus, like the can you go get of, me the two by four stretcher? I, I have to say, that's I think awesome. the most interesting account of Holy Jesus's shit, did it. childhood is in. Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Biff. Christ's yeah. Childhood Friend. Um, that is an excellent book. I, I can't recommend it at all. Well, I can't answer your question, Luke, because I, I don't actually know. I haven't – I must confess, I haven't read the Pope's book. I've just read reports about the Pope's book. So I don't know if he actually tackles any of those uh, non-canonical traditions. But I just love it when they say, oh, these are – they try to dismiss those and say, clearly they were just trying to fill in gaps with uh, just making up stories. And I kind of just sit there and like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Writing yes, stories do. that fill in gaps <laughs> yeah. in knowledge. Yes. What, was, what was interesting was a very strong internet reaction to this. Uh, people got on the blogs right away with headlines like, Pope sets out to debunk Christmas myths or Killjoy Pope crushes Christmas nativity traditions, <laughs> or the Pope has banned Christmas. You know these these really hysterical headlines. You're a mean one, Mister um, <laughs> Pope, Mister Rex. And I, I'm sure I'm sure at this point the Catholic Church has to be going like it doesn't matter. Pope Benedict is the bizarro version of King Midas. Everything he touches turns to crap. <laughs> he, he can't he can't so much as even talk about the Christmas narratives without provoking scandal too. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I haven't read the Pope's book. I would like to see if he talked about the really interesting thing about the Christmas narratives, which is that they virtually have no common details. Right. It, well, Bethlehem versus Nazareth and – Those those are the two consistent features mm-hmm. that, that uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem but raised point, in Nazareth. But yeah. they have to reconcile with his yeah. – his, But how did they get there? Nazareth, did so. they live in Nazareth to yes. begin with according to Luke or perhaps did they move – to uh, Nazareth later to escape persecution from right. King Herod, uh, who was uh, long dead. Yeah, according to Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Those those details are going to be different. Uh, the the Christmas narrative that we hear is typically a, a blending of these two different traditions. The the mm-hmm. in one he's laying in a manger because there's no room for the inn. Uh, in the other, the Magi come to visit Joseph and Mary's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is well after he's born. So you'll notice uh, if you read the narratives, virtually nothing is in common except for born in Bethlehem, Virgin lives Mary. in Nazareth. However we get him to those two cities at right. the appropriate time doesn't seem to matter. Somebody should do a movie where like Rashomon, the Kurosawa thing where they tell it <laughs> and then there's like, but he was – they were coming on a donkey. No, he wasn't. He was already here and then they left on a donkey. Which, which Rashomon? <laughs> what? Movie. By Kurosawa, the Japanese filmmaker? Because there's different Never mind. versions on it. Oh, I get it. I poorly executed a bad (laughs) – but anyways, uh, there are discrepancies in the gospel narratives about these uh, Christmas narratives. And as we've noted in previous books that Matthew and Luke 
probably have different Christmas accounts because they get most of their material from the Gospel of Mark, mm-hmm. and Gospel and of Mark, Mark doesn't has do that. nothing yep. about Christmas. Uh, so they had to fabricate or bring in an oral tradition at that point. Uh, and uh, it's not surprising that the details differed. And beyond that, another thing we try to emphasize on this show is it's not just discrepancies. Uh, when you see discrepancies in the Bible, is there kind of uh, is there a systematic pattern to those discrepancies? Is there something that shows or tips you off to the bias or concerns of the author of that mm-hmm. text? Matthew has a Jewish Jesus bias. Yes. That's why his Jesus has to go to Egypt to escape the evil Pharaoh. I mean. King Herod, and they come back from Egypt and go. Whereas yep, yes. Luke has a pro-Greek bias, and then he emphasizes yep. virgin stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you you suddenly see you suddenly see the perspective of the authors and the needs of these communities coming out in this text. Good indication that they were probably fabricated. Mm-hmm. Now um, here's stateside. I don't know if most of our listeners are aware of this, but uh, the United States. Um, is largely full of idiots um, when it comes to our politicians. I want to read the opening sentence from an article um, from thinkprogress.org. This is about uh, Senator Marco Rubio, who's a Republican from Florida. Um, Here we go. Senator Marco Rubio turned heads last month when he told GQ magazine that he didn't know the age of the earth and sparked speculation that he's laying a foundation for the 2016 presidential run. I love how that's, that reads. Wait, he's, so, he's denying science. That means he's, he's got his aim high. Somebody's exactly. looking for aim high, high when you deny science. I, I'm glad you caught that too. So yes, by, by denying science, he is putting, now he's his, putting himself in the run. Dipping his toe into the water for a presidential run. Welcome Not, to the United States, ladies and gentlemen. We can't say the earth is round for sure. Uh, I, uh, I like your, you're made of, sir. Starting to sound like a stump speech. (laughs) So sad. Um, What did he say, Dave? Well, what he said was um, they asked him if if uh, how old the how old the earth was. And he said, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to answer that. It's one of the great mysteries. Um, (laughs) Somebody dropped an earth science textbook in his lab. Oh, apparently it's not. Yeah, and then um, he uh, came back and said, there's no scientific debate on the age of the Earth. I mean, it's established pretty definitively that it's at least 4.5 billion years old. That's good, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that, just That's wait. a dramatic turnaround. Yes. That's like suddenly forgetting about immigration issues or something <laughs> right, else. Right. Uh, he goes on to say, I was referring to a theological debate, which is a pretty healthy debate. And the theological debate is, how do you reconcile with what science has definitively established with what you may think your faith teaches? Now, for me, actually, when it comes to the age of the earth, there is no conflict. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I think that scientific advances have given us insight into when he did it and how he did it, but I bes- still believe God did it. Okay, not not bad, right? I just think in America, we should have the freedom to teach our children whatever it is we believe. And that means teaching them science. They have to know the science, but also parents have the right to teach them the theology and to reconcile the two things. 
I just think it's fascinating, kind of like the, a Gettysburg Address, right in a paragraph of how creationists or the you know, evangelicals think. They say, on the one hand, you can't possibly deny science. Obviously, it's four score it. and seven billion years ago. Yeah, but there's, <laughs> but then uh, there's science, and then there's theological truth. Yes. And how do you and yeah. so so when people well, say the Earth is like six thousand years old, they're not they don't mean that in a factual scientific sense. They just mean that's their theological belief. Mm-hmm. I, I was liking the quote when he said, uh, "How does one reconcile science?" I thought we were seeing a rare moment of honesty when yeah. he said, "How does one reconcile science with what we think the scriptures yeah. say?" Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, as as him perhaps realizing, okay, uh, a lot of these interpretations are probably. Poor interpretations to begin with, uh, but yeah, yeah. This uh, what's what's with the ambiguity? That's that's my question. There's tr- is there's the, facts when and then he there's says logical stuff. When he says we have the right to teach our children, does he mean in the household we have the right to talk about theologically what's going mm-hmm. on, or does he mean in the schools? Yeah, the schools have the right to. <laughs> the the latter is the only one that's politically relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little too much ambiguity in that statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, Reminds me of Pat Robertson. His whole big thing of the past couple of weeks was yes. mentioning that that uh, he also thinks Christians need to give up the young earth, young earth creationism. And what was so interesting about, and frankly, seemed kind of candid about Robertson's comment. This doesn't doesn't didn't seem like it was rehearsed. Mm-hmm. Right. He stopped. He prefaced the whole thing by saying, "Okay, they're going to lynch me for saying this." Right. And then he went on to give his reason, and it wasn't a scientific one. <laughs> I've reviewed the evidence and come to the conclusion that the most parsimonious explanation. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, no, it was we're going to lose our children. Yeah, if we don't get with science, yep. we're going to lose the next generation. So both him and, and this and is just Rubio, a losing battle. It's just util- in Rubio's case, it's political, but it's just, mm-hmm. there's a utilitarian realization that they can't say things like that, otherwise they'll yes. either lose the kids or get their <clears throat> ass kicked in an election. It's just the honesty that I find remarkable. Christianity for two millennia has been trying to revise its doctrines when it realizes how wrong it is. Yeah. So we yeah. can no longer dismiss science, not because the science is, you know, but, but because we're going to, there's a utilitarian but thing we've like lost. we're going to, yeah. yeah, we're going to lose the kids. Yeah. I just find that stunning. Well, and yeah. I, I, I hope that applies to things like gay marriage as well. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't see Pat Robertson talking, uh, uh, about gay marriage in a positive way anytime soon. Um, but that whole movement, eventually, they're going to yeah. have to go, look, just like they gave up on just a utilitarian you know, approach, interracial so. marriage yeah. and, and before that slavery, you know, they're going to have to go, look, uh, this is a battle we're not going to win. Let's just cut our losses here. Robertson not too long ago also said that it was immoral to jail people under these marijuana laws for such mm-hmm. a innocent of course, he's crime. a big dope smoker, Pat Robertson. <laughs> well, what I'm wondering is, is this what happens when crazy people go senile? <laughs> is that they <laughs> they start having like the appearance reverse. of sanity in what they're saying? I'm getting really tired of agreeing with Pat Robertson as of late. <laughs> it's a little scary, it, it isn't it? In cramps statistics, my we style. call that regression to the mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, if – uh, Marco Rubio is suggesting that we should be able to teach creationism in our schools that will almost certainly lead to more church-state challenges in the courts. Um, and who better to talk to about church-state issues than our resident expert, Mr. Ed Brayton? 
With us on the show today is friend of the show, Ed Brayton. Ed Brayton is the author of the excellent Dispatches from the Culture Wars blog at freethoughtblogs.com. He's also a uh, founder of freethoughtblogs.com. Uh, Ed Brayton, welcome to Reasonable Doubts. Always great to be with you, my friend. But we haven't had you on the show for a while. What have you been up to lately? Uh, well, Freethought Blogs, uh, founded in August of uh, 2011, so we're about, I don't know, 15 months old, 16 months old now. Uh, that's going very well, lots of traffic, uh, lots of uh, readers who enjoy it, so uh, that's cool. But other than that, I'm, I'm uh, really focusing on uh, writing a book mm-hmm. uh, about a lot of the same subjects that I talk about in the blog, church-state separation cases and, and that sort of thing. So the book is uh, tentatively titled, By Their Love, violence in defense of Christian hegemony. And it is about uh, those who challenge sort of Christian domination of the culture, particularly legally, people who file um, lawsuits over things like school prayer and creationism in public schools and um, Ten Commandments monuments, that sort of thing. Uh, These sorts of symbolic uh, things, sometimes symbolic, sometimes really part of the curriculum, um, that established that, you know, this is a nation really for Christians only and everybody else is sort of a second-class citizen. And inevitably, almost inevitably, uh, those who file suits or, or, or otherwise challenge those, those kinds of things almost always become the victims of, at the very least, um, harassment and bullying and intimidation. Mm-hmm. Almost always there are death threats uh, that come their way as well. Sometimes vandalism and even significant violence. And so I want to tell some of those stories of people who have uh, who've gone through that and uh, the response from their local communities where they not just are made to feel like an outcast but are really threatened um, for daring to stand up for, for their own rights and for equality. So that's what the book is about, and that's really what I'm putting most of my time into right now. Now, I know, I know you're a major geek about con law. Yeah. And I've many times been impressed about the the minutia of details that uh, for someone who's a non-lawyer, you could easily fool me. You got the cases down, you know, the ins and outs of uh, the law, and that's part of what makes your blog so fantastic on these issues because you get a really in-depth look at things. This sounds a little different from you. Are you, are you taking it – you're taking it more in the personal – kind of personal stories direction or is there still a lot of con law in there as well? There will be a little both. In fact, right now I'm working on a, uh, a chapter on – I want to do basically two chapters that sort of go into the history of this. One will be a chapter on the concept of separation of church and state when it first came into being, when the Constitution was written. Uh, so we'll look at state church establishments and uh, what happened in Virginia and Rhode Island and how this concept of separation of church and state came into being and what it meant um, to those who, who framed the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And, uh, and then another chapter will be on the, what the Supreme Court has done with it, particularly since 1947. Mm-hmm. 1947 was the Everson uh, versus Board of Education case, um, which was the first time that the Supreme Court said the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment applies to state and local governments as well as the federal government. And, um, and since then... Uh, that spawned dozens of cases involving particularly public schools. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, and so there will be a chapter that goes through the history of some of that. And then that's going to set up uh, some of these personal stories because some of the cases that I'm going to talk about, some of the most famous cases that, that the Supreme Court has has um, has ruled on in terms of church, state, and, and, and schools in particular, are also some of the personal stories that I'm going to tell. For example, Ellery Shemp, um, 1963 case of Abington Township versus Shemp. Ellery Shemp was the plaintiff in that case, uh, and it involved um, uh, mandatory Bible reading. In Pennsylvania, uh, at that time, schools were required, every single classroom was required every morning to, have a, to, to read 10 verses of the Bible. And so they would have students, they would go around the class, and each day a different student would get up in front of the class and read 10 verses out of the Bible, and then they would continue their day. Uh, when Ellery was 15 years old, he, um, he violated that policy. Um, by sitting at his desk and reading the Koran instead of the <laughs> Bible, which is a pretty gutsy thing to do uh, for anybody, but especially, and this was 1957 or 58 when he did that. So I'm going to tell Ellery's story. Uh, will be, you know, one of the chapters will focus on him. Um, now his family didn't get get it too bad. They got some death threats. They got a little bit of vandalism. <laughs> not um, not too bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, c- compared to some of these other <laughs> cases, because there are some of these cases are unbelievable. When you and I did, were doing the radio show together, yeah. we had you may remember Joanne Bell. Yeah, oh, most certainly um, on the show. She's the most appalling case I've ever heard of, and and. I've found out since I started working on the book, as I've done, you know, deeper research on this, it's even more disturbing than we realized three years ago when we interviewed her. It's an absolutely astonishing case from beginning to end, um, where uh, after she filed the case, uh, about a week after the case was filed, somebody called in a death threat to her children's school. Mm -hmm. So she, as any parent would do, got in her car and drove down there, make sure her kids are okay. Yeah. When she opened her car door, a woman grabbed her by her hair, pulled her out of the car, slammed her head against the roof of the car several times, dislocated her shoulder, gave her a concussion, pulled about half the hair out of the left side of her head. My goodness. While this was going on, the principal of the middle school was standing about 15 feet away and didn't do anything to stop it. To make it even worse, the woman who did this was a school employee. (laughs) She ran the school cafeteria, pleads guilty to assault, she doesn't get a prison term, but she gets a, a, a fine. Not only does the school not fire her, they held a fundraiser to pay her fine. Wow. Yeah. It's just, that is unbelievable. Later that year, and, and she told this story on uh, when we had her on the radio show, later that year, their house was firebombed and burned to the ground. Hmm. Um, she got all sorts of threatening phone calls and letters You know, all the time. She got sent her own obituary in the mail. You know, how, how creepy is that? <laughs> Um, at one point, she answered the phone, and it was a little girl voice on the other end of the phone. And the little girl said, Mommy? Oh. And she realized pretty quickly it wasn't her daughter. It wasn't her daughter's voice. And then an adult came on the phone and said, Next time, it'll be your kid. That's yeah. very creepy. That's... The, the whole thing, the deeper I dig into it, the more appalling it becomes. Another, here's another appalling thing about that case. The attorney for the school board in that case was a guy named Bill Graves. He was a Texas state legislator at the time. He is now a state judge in, uh, I'm sorry, in Oklahoma, not Texas. He is now a state judge in Oklahoma. He's a Christian Reconstructionist, hmm. a real one. 
And he called to the witness stand as an expert witness in that case, R.J. Rush Dooney, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. In that case? In that case. Called him to the witness stand as an expert witness. Wow. It's, yeah, like I said, the deeper I dig into it, like the more astonishing it becomes. It's How did these not get overturned on appeal, or did she just not appeal them? They They did. did. Okay. Uh, in fact, she, she won at the district court level. Okay. Uh, and then the school board appealed and, um, and she lost again, or she won again. So, you know, she won the case, but at a cost of having her house fire bombed. Yeah. Having gotten beaten up. And here's another one and of the other daily really physical and psychological torture. I mean, right. it's just. And on top of that, when, when they burned their house, well, this was September of 1981, uh, her house gets burned down. That's on a Friday night that that happens on Monday morning. The uh, Graves, the attorney for the school board, files a motion with the court to dismiss the case because she no longer lived in the school district. Oh, oh my. Yeah. This is weapons-grade chutzpah we're talking about. (laughs) And the judge, of course, said no. He said, absolutely not. He said, I'm not going to let this case go away because of, you know, basically an act of terrorism. Terrorism, yeah. Um, uh, But that's that's the worst case I know of. But there have been a lot of others. Of course, you know, Jessica Alquist. Yeah, yeah. Um, who just earlier this year won the lawsuit in Cranston, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up having to go to school with an armed police guard. Yeah. Um, her family got all kinds of death threats. She was, you know, Twitter and Facebook just exploded with death threats. I mean, this is this is the new school threat. You know, Ellery Shemp didn't have Facebook um, in 1958, you know. But what? now that makes it very easy for people to, to make these these threats and say horrible things. So what's kind of shocking to me about all this is is uh, you know obviously the retort is you know turn the other cheek. This is you know the, these people are not exactly radiating a Christ like glow with their actions. But especially in the in the Jessica Alquist case because the prayer mural mm-hmm. was all about being a good sport when you lose and showing <laughs> kindness and humility and so forth. <laughs> So that's just yeah. There's so much yeah, irony. Yeah, in many the of irony meters up to eleven. <laughs> but uh, um, but but you know, hypocrisy is a pretty common thing, and I could see maybe one or two really outlandish people making a threat. But what's so disturbing about these cases is how the you know the entire community's up in arms. It's not like the entire community's calling in death threats, but like you were saying, in in some of these extreme cases, even after the person's been physically assaulted they're still you know they're still blaming the victim they're still supporting the perpetrators it's yeah there, there's so much about this that is that is disturbing in all of these cases and the fact that it there's almost never a counterexample going all the way back to the 50s and up to this year literally going on right now um, i only know of a single case where that hasn't happened and that's a brand new case that was just filed a few months ago where uh, the the high school uh, now he's a, a freshman in college. Um, mm-hmm. and he was Mac, Max Nielsen down in South Carolina, and when I talked to him, he said, "You know, I haven't had any of that. I haven't had any threats. Nobody's been mean to me." He said the worst that happened uh, was that one of the co plaintiffs in the case um, had uh, a friend's mother say that she could no longer be friends with her. Uh, mm-hmm. He said that's really about it. He's everybody's been pretty respectful. They disagree. Most of the community disagrees with me, but they've been pretty cool. I was astonished to hear that because it is literally the only case I know of where huh. that has happened, and it doesn't matter. You know, you might think that this happens more in the Deep South. It doesn't. You know, I mean, ironically, uh, Jessica Alquist is in Rhode Island. 
Right, right. Founded by Roger Williams, who was the one who invented <laughs> the concept of separation. The of church l- and state. last place I would expect something like that to have. Well, maybe <laughs> I could think of other places that'd be yeah. less likely, but still. But it doesn't matter where you are in the country. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter when. It's not getting better now than it was then. In fact, it may be getting worse. You well, know? you preempted my next question, which was to say, in this in this case, that was the exception to the rule. Was there anything that you could find about the community, about the person who filed the lawsuit, anything to indicate why his situation might have been different? I'm hoping to, and I want to talk to some of the local people there. I haven't done this yet. Mm-hmm. But but in writing about that case, I want to talk to the people from the school board. I want to talk to maybe some of the local ministers mm-hmm. and find out, because that's usually where this starts, is it starts with some local minister you know, getting up on his horse and, and, and stirring up anger over something like that. And it doesn't appear to have happened. Now, I asked Max that question when I interviewed him. Why do you think you haven't gotten that where almost everyone else has? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I don't know. He said, but I think it may have something to do with the fact that he was kind of the town, the school star to begin okay. with. You know, valedictorian, Eagle Scout, you know, so everybody's pretty proud of this guy already. Yeah, that he sort of had a standing uh, there as a, a great kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been true in other cases as well. It was true in the Joanne Bell case. Her kids were, you know, straight-A students. In fact, um, one of the things that happened in that case was that the uh, her son, the, the case was filed in May of 81, right t- uh, before, about three weeks before school ended. And her son was set to win seven out of the nine academic awards. Um, that were given each year for his class. And the school ended up canceling the assembly that ordinarily happened to give them the awards because they didn't want to give this kid an award because of what he'd done. They ended up just mailing them to them. Um, so there have been other cases where you had kids you know, with sterling reputations that were good kids. Ellery Shemp was the same way. I mean, he was you know, just a, you know, kind of uh, right out of uh, Norman Rockwell um, uh, painting, you know, but uh, it hasn't happened there in Irma, South Carolina. I hope it continues that way. But I'm really curious to talk to the people there and find out, like, why did, you, did this community react differently? Because maybe it'll provide a counterpoint and an example for how other you know, communities can do it going forward. Mm-hmm. Are there any differences over time? Has, have you noticed uh, in researching these different cases, uh, have things gotten better as of recent? Or No. No. No, I don't think so. I mean... Uh, you know, Ellery Shemp going all the way back there, you can go back to the, to the 30s and 40s with the uh, Vashti McCollum's family and the Engel family in some other pretty high-profile church day cases. They all got that. Hmm. Um, but it has continued right up to the present day. Like I said, Jessica Alquist ends up, you know, 16-year-old girl, she ends up going to school with an armed police guard because she's getting so many yeah. threats. Um, and, uh, and so it doesn't appear to have gotten any better. The, the Joanne Bell case took place about 30 years ago. That was 1981 and 82. Uh, and that was the worst of the bunch um, that I've found. So, um, you know, I, do, I don't sense that it's getting any better yeah. over time. There isn't any evidence that it's getting better over time, although you would you would hope that it would. Yeah. Well, perhaps one area where it's getting better, uh, I would I would think, is at least the people who are filing these lawsuits have better social support once once these bad things do happen. For example, you know, yeah. Jessica Alquist, of course. The secular community really came together around her, provided scholarships and emotional support and everything else, but basically made her into a rock star in the skeptical yeah, and, movement. And I talked to Jessica about that. I've talked to her about this several times. And, and she said, you know, the first phone call she got 
um, the first contact that she got after that was from J.T. Everhart, mm-hmm. who at that time was working for the Secular Student Alliance and support students and stuff like this. She did, she wasn't aware that there was sort of a secular community out there mm-hmm. at the time, and she said when J.T. reached out to her and she found out that there were actually people who would support her, since almost no one in her town would support her outside of her closest friends and family, uh, she said, I cried. I just I couldn't believe it. And now she's really found a home. Uh, in that community. And then, uh, interesting that other people, like Harrison Hopkins, who is another kid down in, in, in South Carolina, uh, who filed that, and Damon Fowler, they've they've talked about how Jessica inspired them. Hmm. And so I think you are seeing more activism because of situations like this. When you see someone brave enough to stand up, it inspires other people. Mm-hmm. And we now do have communities like, you know, CFI Michigan, mm-hmm. um, where if somebody locally filed a case like that, we you know, we'd be there to back them up. And uh, I think that's very important. And that that's really um, very hopeful. How many times do you think it's, it is uh, skeptics, atheists, free thinkers that are initiating these lawsuits or, or are these religious people most of the time? That's one of the really interesting things is a lot of the plaintiffs are not atheists Mm -hmm. in many of the biggest church state cases. um, The plaintiffs have in fact been, been religious and often been Christian uh, in the in the uh, McLean versus Arkansas big case involving creation science, all of the plaintiffs were were bishops in various uh, mainline Christian de- denominations. In the Dover case in 2005, uh, another case involving creationism, uh, most of the plaintiffs in that case were Christian. Joanne Bell, her family founded the Nazarene Church in Little Axe, Oklahoma. <laughs> she had a perfect attendance record at church. She hadn't, oh my. Had not, hadn't missed a day in church in, in something like 15 years. Um, so yes, it doesn't seem to matter. You know, it's it's not just that you're a non-believer; you, you're the wrong kind of Christian, right? You know, and uh, and so those people get abused as badly as atheists do. But but in Joanne's case, interestingly, she had never heard of the ACLU uh, outside <laughs> of negative. She said the only thing I knew about the ACLU because in her case, she went to the school board with it. The school board president literally said to her, "We're not going to change it. If you don't like it, call the ACLU." <laughs> and that was the first time she'd thought of it. Well, yeah, because she said, she said, you know, in church, all I had ever heard about the ACLU was that they were evil. Uh-huh. So she, she calls the ACLU. They said, absolutely, we'll take the case. They start representing her and another uh, parent there. Uh, Joanne Bell ends up starting to volunteer for them in their office and then ends up in 1990 being named executive director of the Oklahoma ACLU. She retired good, last year from that job. Good for her. That's that's great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we we you and I were both at a uh, at a lecture the other day from uh, um uh from the Michigan ACLU and they were outlining all the different church state cases they've been in recently in this right. past year and it was it was remarkable how many of them were defending the rights of religious people, even some pretty conservative religious people. They it's, do this all the time. This is not – you don't see this – I mean, in, in the right-wing press, you know. Right. You would think that all they're out do is they're out to get Christians, you know. But they defend street preachers all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've done this for, for decades now. And for some um, pretty heinous stuff, stuff that a lot of us wouldn't want to touch, you know. It's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've defended, you know, high school students wearing anti-gay t-shirts. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, they don't agree with them. But yeah. they think they have the right to say it. And that's, I mean, that's why I'm such a big fan of the ACLU. Yeah, me too. You know? I like the consistency. And it's, you know, the the fact that their own, they risk, they risk losing their own fundraisers shows their commitment to those principles. 
well, look at the Skokie case where yeah. they defended the American Nazi Party. They lost about half their funding because of that and membership. Yeah. But they did the they did, they the, did right the right thing. thing. Yep. yep. Uh, well, before uh, before we go, I, I I think it's great that you're. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's great that you're writing a book. I can't wait to uh, get my autographed copy. Um, but well, you're going to see it before then because I've asked you to do some review on it before yeah. I get it done. So <laughs> but you'll uh, have a first crack at it. But uh, but also uh, I, I I think it's a fantastic idea to just uh, humanize some of these cases and, and show the the real human cost, uh, and and that that alone is going to be a very important thing for people to see. But have you been able throughout all these different individual cases? Has anything emerged from it? Any patterns or ideas that have popped out to you as being significant? Uh, no, I don't think I think I've been surprised that some of the cases are even worse than I expected. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's been any sort of overall theme come out, except, of course, you know, this is just this really dark underbelly that we need to expose. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons why this is really important, and, and coincidentally, there was actually a case just today in Pennsylvania where uh, the Freedom from Religion Foundation is suing over a Ten Commandments monument at a high school there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the they filed a motion asking the judge to allow the plaintiffs, the students, and their parents to remain anonymous and file as John or Jane Doe. And uh, and the judge granted it because of the risk of this kind of hmm. threats and violence toward them. And one of the things I'm hoping for with the book is I'm actually hoping that it will get submitted as evidence Nice in yes. cases like this. Because there was a case in Virginia earlier this year where a woman uh, filed a suit where the judge said no to anonymity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes her a target. Um, yeah. And there's no reason not to give them anonymity. It doesn't change any of the legal arguments, right? You know, but uh, but the other side doesn't like that, uh, and mm-hmm. I think partly because they know that there will be some some pressure brought to bear if the public knows who they are. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of embarrassed. I didn't even know that you could file lawsuits like that, or or that would be anonymous to the public. I didn't even know that. Well, that's was where possible. you know Roe versus Wade was that way. Mm-hmm. The plaintiff was Jane Roe mm-hmm. in that case. Um, that was that was one of those um, okay. in, uh, anonymous cases, and there there have been a, a, several of them in the in the uh, church state area. Santa Fe versus Doe, mm-hmm. or Doe versus Santa Fe was a school prayer case. Um, so yeah, you can do that, but it's up to the judge, and you have to. Yeah. In each case, the lawyer has to say and and show evidence that there is a genuine threat here. Right. In the case today, they were able to show all kinds of like Facebook messages of people saying somebody should beat the crap out of them, you know that kind of stuff, and. Um, uh, and that works. So um, I'm really hoping that it will help some people down the line, A, to sort of bring their stories to light and humanize it and make mm-hmm. people realize there's real victims here, and, and B, to, to provide more evidence for, those, for, for attorneys when they're filing a motion asking plaintiffs to remain anonymous, and maybe that will help people avoid this sort of thing in the future. Excellent. This is so exciting. So uh, last question, when is the book coming out? Do you know? Uh, don't know for sure. It'll probably in the spring. I'm guessing March, uh, maybe April. Uh, mm-hmm. That's sort of the tentative uh, uh, line at this point. Uh, I want to have the first draft finished by the end of January. Uh, and then you've been gracious enough to agree to, to take a look at it and sort of give it a review and, and, and help me make some changes in it. And, uh, and I've got someone else who's going to do that too. And so then we'll sort of, sort of start the editing process and hope to get it out in March or April. Well, this is exciting. So thank you so much again for, uh, for taking time out to join us on the show once again, Ed. Always glad to be here.
in the media recently has been a Christian apologist, Dinesh D'Souza. One of our favorites. Yes, Famous. He, you can see him all over YouTube yeah. having debates with the likes of uh, Hitchens and uh, Susan Jacoby, right? Yeah. You can listen to Ed Brayton and I, again, mm-hmm. uh, in a RD Extra debunking that debate. It takes a lot of work to debunk D'Souza because he is voluminous in the amount of BS that he produces. Did anybody see that documentary that he was in? 2016, Obama's America. I, I have not seen it because I um, my gag reflex for things like that is really <laughs> – So the, wait, the movie is 2016 but then his book is The Roots of Obama's Rage and Obama's America Unmaking the American Dream. Mm-hmm. The movie claims that he was – Obama was influenced by his father's Kenyan anti-colonialism mm-hmm. and, yes. and D- D'Souza and, uh, uh, thinks that's a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> right. And I'm like – it's a bad thing to be anti-colonial. We're in the United States of America. What yeah, yeah, we start yeah, yeah. with being anti-colonial? How un-American to be anti-colonial. That bastard. How dare you reject the British attempt to colonize your country? <laughs> to be fair, I don't think he's originally from here. That this is the um, That's a great rip on him. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, he's – I mean this is a guy who um, is sticking his nose into politics in really fairly ridiculous ways. And now I'm generally opposed to discussing the sex lives of public figures because <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? Um, I don't Unless. care – well, yeah. I mean I don't care if the president is having an affair. Or I don't care um, who's sleeping with whom. Unless they are moral crusaders who um, denounce people for being gay or for any anything else while they're running around and you know having gay sex or cheating on their wives, as the case may be, is the hypocrisy stupid? Yeah, yeah. And uh, D'Souza just got served up with a big old dose of hypocrisy. Uh, turns out that. Um, He's got at, at least one lady on the side. Was there was there more than one, or was is he just no, accused he, of the one? He showed up at a conference um, at King's College, at, where at, he was president. Yeah, so he went to a Christian worldview conference, which happened to be in South Carolina, oh, with another okay. woman, yeah. uh, other than his wife Dixie. Oh, so uh, he and then he introduced this new woman as his fiancee, even though he's married. Both of them were still at that time married. Yes. Oh, but, oh, she was married too. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, well, well. Much. He's much younger. Not that that matters either. Just, no. just kind of, you know, he says, smile um, and he, a wink. But here's the thing that, that that floors me. He says his he and his wife had been separated for two years, and he had been told by advisors that there really well, there, there technically wasn't anything wrong. Nothing with, wrong with getting engaged when you're still married. Exactly, yeah. because at, at that point he thought it was just a legal thing because they had been separated, and he mm-hmm. also thought that the Christians, the his you know base, essentially wouldn't have a problem with that. Right, and he claims that they checked into different hotel rooms when they were there. They didn't share a hotel room, he and uh, his fiance. Um, but turns out Christians did have a bit of a problem with this. What a shock. Including the college where he was president, um, King's College, small college in Manhattan, I believe. Mm, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like mm. really small college, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he now no longer works for them thanks to his um, extramarital fiance. Which is funny because he a lot of the support he had in his uh, like his film project and such about Obama was from none other than Newt Gingrich. Yeah, huh. <laughs> uh, another champion of the overlapping mating style. And the overlapping mating style. 
Is that what we're going to call it? Listen, when you when you go from when you go from ship to shore, you got to have one foot planted on each. To what? That, that is the best. Give me a metaphor here to, to do the overlap. One hand on the branch before you let yeah, go. There of the you old go. Branch. See, you understand that. Uh, okay. Oh. <laughs> but there's – yeah, so other than the hypocrisy specifically about D'Souza, it's, I mean it's almost like a trope now that we have – we're served up with regularity of some evangelical or pompous person. Every few months there's somebody that comes out who's either gay or taking a walk on the wild side or stepping out on the A walk on the Appalachian Trail yeah, as the it Appalachian were. Yeah. Trail. It's, it's so if you're just about any moralist now. You have to suspect their motives yeah. uh, because so often it seems that uh, they're, they're most adamantly – preaching against the very sins they commit. But this gets people thinking often of the social science inclination like me about about what it is that that religion sometimes functions in regards to your – well, your your marketability on the dating scene, Mm -hmm. shall we say. So does that mean we're ready for a God thinks like you? I think that is what's happening right now. Brought to you by ChristianMingles.com. By ChristianMingles. So you guys are Uh, – And and Dave is – Probably serious about that because I think they have been sponsors to our blog before. Really? I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, I have a screenshot of ChristianSingles.com or something like that. Yeah. and That uh, does come up every time yeah. I'm on the page. <laughs> Oh wow! No, seriously, I no, had never it, thought about that before. No, we we because we've I'm made not remarks joking. before about like the mega church thing, like so when we did um like the uh, oh the Rob Bell Church at Mars Hill mm-hmm. is basically a meat market. You go there and it looks like there's all kinds of like well beautiful young people and mingling mm-hmm. and all tidied up and dusted up to look good. And there's a certain there is a certain religion as dating assistance element. Mm-hmm. And we all know plenty of uh, good atheists that, for some reason or another, have failed to find a partner in life just yet. So. Join a church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, didn't we have a previous episode where we talked about one possible social function of the church yes. was to get rid of unmarriageable men? In church, there are – if you do study head counts, there's very few sometimes single men. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a death or dearth of single men. Yeah, because they're one sleeping the, in on Sundays. And one of the roles of, of religion in that sense, the sociology theory, is that it socializes these stray men into meeting women and then they become family people and settle down and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, so the um, so the, I wanted to do a God thinks like you on that general theme of religion as a mating strategy or mating control. An element. aphrodisiac could even be that if you're into that sort of torture porn, maybe so, some <laughs> torture porn. I was going to say, yeah, I guess some really good S and M at the end of Passion Time of the up. Christ. Burn him. <laughs> um, no, but the uh, the one there's a study that came out a couple of years ago that uh, with the eye catching headline the mating competitors increase religious beliefs. This is by a group that's down in, in uh, I think it's Arizona State. Um, the lead author is Jessica Lee, um, but she, uh, they talk about how rather than and I think we've covered on our show before rather than treating religiosity as a fixed entity that you're just this religious and no more no less that it's actually alterable slightly in many cases by things like priming stimuli the environment you know your stage in life but this one is that they altered the person's interest in uh, the great. opposite sex uh, so the study uh, actually was uh, set out to alter the person's interest in religion so here religion was a dependent or outcome variable by exposing the people to different pools of of mating uh, competitors, same man, opposite sex. Mm. So men and women, in other words, were told to look at – they were given some sham story about it where 
evaluating dating profiles, but they showed them attractive members of the same and the opposite sex. Here's what you're up against. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, you're done. Yeah. This is you're, – you're up against all these attractive people and then they measured their religiosity after the study. Hmm. Right, and so what they found was is that when people were uh, when people were uh, looking at these attractive people of, and then it was actually it turned out of the same sex. So men, when they saw, were exposed so they're, to their competitors, we're not talking about people who are attracted yes, exactly. to exactly heterosexual sex. people yeah. when they were exposed to competitors of their own sex became or rated themselves as being more religious afterward. Hmm. If they were attractive competitors, yeah. If they were, you know, run of the mill. So the, the rationale for this study, if you recall some of the like the, the, these things we've talked about on this show or you might have heard elsewhere about like evolutionary mating strategies of things like playing, uh, playing the field and keeping your options open, like not marrying and settle down and having a family but having a more promiscuous style as opposed to a conservative, shall we say religious conservative style of – quickly getting married, finding a partner, starting a family, not playing the field, that th- those things might be um, alterable by your perception of what else is that you're up against. Mm-hmm. So if you are, a, for example, a female and you see that there's a bunch of other attractive females that could be your competition pool that would sway your po- potentially your partner away from you. Mm-hmm. Time you to can, hunker down and – You, you <laughs> support religion and traditional values. Get more. down on your knees and start praying. Because you you want to essentially uh, get, find a way to manipulate men into settling down and not playing that field, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly with men, you know, if you see that there's a bunch of other men that could potentially take your mate away, that you want to support whatever value system, it, it activates that I oh crap, I need to get my partner yeah. to settle down, and what better way to do it than making them think that God wants them to. So this by. could be a whole host of behaviors from like I don't think God wants us to go dancing, honey, to. Well, Christianity has never been about squelching sexuality in general. It's been about corralling it into a, a right. forbid non-procreative sex. We've, you right. know, why are they so against gays? Uh, per, you know, cheating, things that, that could potentially be mate-threatening behavior, yeah. not just sex in general. In fact, we kind of joke about it when a Christian person says, have all the sex you want, kinky sex, as long as it's marriage. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah. that religion is anti-sex in general, but but the the competitive type of sex, it's a, it's a – in this way to look at it, it's an evolutionary strategy to prevent people from stepping out. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But clearly since it's it's this behavior goes up when people are uh, exposed to attractive competitors, the idea is one feels insecure about one's own attractiveness or ability to keep a mate uh, and therefore religion is one strategy to lock down your partner's sexuality. Uh, so you spend your experience points on your religious skill. You raise that. Hopefully, you win your marriage battle. Well, it's you know, if you're uh, way overweight or your face is Quasimodo ish or something like that, you know, religion is a religion is a good backup strategy. <laughs> right. Now, when you remind people of the, how good the competition is, they think that the odds, the mating odds, are stacked against themselves, and they respond by promoting a strategy. If, in fact, you're in a religious area, that strategy is. You know, commitment, monogamy, don't go dating, mm-hmm. then you support that. But my question is so when people are exposed to attractive um, opposition for a mate, they become more religious. Do we have evidence that that works, that that makes them more appealing to the 
the opposite sex partners that they're trying to That's woo. a good question. Because that is something they're considering, but uh, but it wouldn't have to necessarily make them more appealing to their partners. All it has to do is restrict their partners from going certainly, out. Certainly. Mm. Yeah. But I'm saying, is that is that a successful strategy? Do, yeah, if yeah, they become yeah. well, more religious, well, then, are they more likely to land the, the uh, best – Partner, and we'll cut off infidelity and those yeah. other things too. Yeah, well, people, uh, particular, and we're talking here. Obviously, more, it doesn't do that. <laughs> cut off infidelity. Yeah, more so yeah. in countries where it's associated with being normative, that people associate that as a proxy for morality. So, if, why is it that these guys who convert to religion and make a big show out of "I used to be uh, a bad boy and now I've settled down" and mm-hmm. you know, sport or sports figures or popular figures? It's appealing to women because they use that as a proxy for now. He's ready to support my kids. He can. He's going to have kids with me and settle down and not run around. Mm-hmm. And from the male perspective, heterosexual perspective, a female who says they're willing to do that is a good marital partner. Um, there is some evidence, though, that that that. In the singles, if you're just trying to get commitment-free sex, that might not be a good thing to know that your partner is religious because you know, why would they <laughs> – Real boner killer though. That's why, that's why we haven't been able to convince our, our whole strategy of convincing secular men to go to churches. Yeah, in a non-Christian – Has not seemed to work. We haven't gotten too many emails. If you're into the whole mating, mating as much as possible thing, that's a, that can be a downer. In fact, when you have non-Christian dating pools, so not the ones that are like the Christian singles – a woman mentioning that she's highly religious results in a drop in her hit rate from responses to her ad. Her hit rate? Yeah. yeah. How many guys respond to it? There's all kinds of – because now that this stuff is computerized, you can do all kinds of statistical studies about what gets you more points or sure. fewer hits and things like that. Wow. That's – Yeah. The, but the other uh, study that gels with that that I wanted to talk about was the issue of paternity certainty. From an evolutionary per- perspective, again, the worst thing that could happen to a male would be is if you're cuckolded, that you mm. end up supporting with your resources – time a kid who is not your kid that's fathered by another male. So again, you know, many people could probably think of religion having explicit rules that is designed to prevent that. So why is the Bible so concerned about things like female chastity as opposed right. to male chastity or like, you know, sanctioning female. Or her menstrual female. cycle. Why would that possibly matter? Or her menstrual cycle. Yeah. So there's all kinds of – in the Jewish religion, for example, in the Islam, there's all kinds of purity things sometimes about after her period, a woman has to go a length of time before she can become considered ritually clean again and then go to the right. temple. She has to wash, up wash and, herself like six times. Yep. And, yeah. I've heard it put sometimes that, oh, these Abrahamic faiths were so woman-hating that they – anything associated with the female body was considered unclean or impure. Well, that's a lot of the people who are into like the pagan and goddess religions emphasize mm-hmm. that this patriarchal monotheistic religion was really anti-woman. It was anti, you know, mm-hmm. in some ways anti-life or anti-nature right. Right. Uh, by sequestering and controlling women's sexuality. Yeah, and it most certainly was, but there's a kind of interesting breeding spin yeah, and, on and, this. Yeah, um, and this was a study that was done with a West African religion. It's in the country of Mali. They have a traditional people called the Dogon, I think mm-hmm. it's pronounced, or I guess I want to say Dogon because I'm yes. Dogon. <laughs> anyway, so some but Dogon the, um, community over there. Uh, yeah. There's a community there, and the reason that this is a useful population is because they have some members who are uh, indigenous religion, and some members that have been had uh, Christianized, Catholic, mm-hmm. and Evangelical, and Protestant, and some that are Muslim. But in the indigenous religion of the Dogon people, they have this uh, the tradition for women to go into what's called a menstrual hut. So it's like a little uh, – Like the red tent. Tent, <laughs> yes, a red tent that you can get, take out too. But the uh, period, they have to go sit in this hut. It's not exactly.
exactly a, f- a fun activity, but they have to go be sequestered there. Hmm. The doggone like, hut is not that comfortable. <laughs> I should never make that joke. <laughs> that really jumped the shark here, Jeremy. But the, uh, they go into for five days or however long it takes them to complete their period into these menstrual huts. Now, you might think, well, that's, you know, this a weird ritual that doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything other than maybe a yuck factor. Let's put the woman mm-hmm. in there. But from the standpoint of identifying when women are menstruating, that's a good idea. You've yeah. just made a supernatural mm. sanction on God has identified you as now being here's your period and then no surprise in two weeks you'll you know in a few days you'll be fertile after this thing. So it allows right. men to clock when women are fertile and when they're not. And there it takes the mystery. Yeah. They're more – they want sex more right when she's fertile. Right. Yeah, and so, also the family uh, has more extra – they know just when to monitor and add extra pressure to her Yeah, it's essentially well. hmm. the family, the male's family can monitor the women. They've taken care of the problem that humans have had compared to chimpanzees or bonobos or you know other things. We just – we can't tell – Outward appearance-wise, yep. when fertility is happening, so it's a cultural institution Bam. to to, to monitor mm-hmm. women's fertility. So there was a this study uh, was uh, the lead author here is Beverly Strassman. She has collected samples from DNA from these people for a while, so she knows actually she can confirm through the Y chromosome mm-hmm. who's the father of whom. Mm-hmm. Meaning that she can track supposed father and son pairs to, to verify whether they are in fact father and son or not. And what she found was compared – this wasn't truly a study where she compared religion itself because there weren't any people who were you know, non-religious types. She didn't find a lot of Hitchens fans in the – <laughs> the Dogon people. But they when compared she compared them to the Muslim population. But she can compare the, the Christian and Muslims with this indigenous religion that has hmm. the tradition of the menstrual yeah. huts because the Christians yeah. and Muslims don't have a menstrual right. hut. One sh- thing that we should say here is part of the reason why this works is because they, they don't believe in birth control mm-hmm. in this group. Pollution of the paternity could could uh, could easily be avoided just by wearing a condom or something, right. but yeah, they right. don't they don't have access to this stuff. So so what she found was is that the uh, that the people that followed the traditional religion that had the Menstrual huts had a about half a low of a cuckoldry rate as the people who had the other religions. It was these are fairly low figures, but it was about one point three percent was the lower figure versus the two point nine percent that didn't have the menstrual hut tradition. And uh, you know, it's a low figure of cuckoldry because many people have tried to say that cuckoldry is actually up into the four and five percent range in some populations. Mm. But in this one, she found again that statistically it was significant that the traditional religions led to a, a greater confidence of paternity rate than the non-traditional religions that don't monitor the women's menstrual cycle. Wow. So what she was trying to suggest with this, and again, we need more studies on different aspects of this, is that maybe one function of religion, again, in a broader evolutionary sense, is, like we mentioned before, not only monitoring mating behavior, but in this specific case, monitoring and promoting paternity certainty. At least the patriarchal traditions, in some ways, might have been adaptive to keep track of when women are are fertile and who they're stepping out with. You know, and we've complained. Many feminists have rightly complained about religion bef- uh, before as being uh, as patriarchal and other sorts of policies and and their attitudes towards women. This is actually on a biological level that you can see that the that patriarchy is a, a control system of women can be re- religified. God yeah. becomes the supernatural monitor of women's sexuality. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a cultural way of backing up male's desire to keep that mate in line. <laughs> I, I know you don't want to go in the hut for five days, but God wants you to go in the hut yeah, for five yeah. days. So, so sorry, honey. It's my hands are tied here. I, I'd uh, love to have you in the house right now. 
one last little detail to bring up was um, they did mention in those studies that when you start asking people about their own religiosity, sexual attitudes are way more predictive uh, of religiosity than would be attitudes on giving to the poor or other things that these scriptures mm. emphasize more. Almost any other moral behavior. Uh, yeah, a lot of people. I mean, Sam, one of the best parts of uh, Sam Harris's letter to a Christian nation was how he was just focusing on the kind of perversity of, of what a lot of conservative Christians in America pay attention to morally, you know, the just kind of penis morality or genital mor- morality. Abortion and homosexuality and – Yeah, know. yeah. Why is it that these issues so captivate the Christian mind even though the Bible really spends very little time talking about them and a lot more time on social social action and uh, and feeding and taking care of the poor and widows, right? Well – this would explain why there's a why there's a higher emphasis on the sexual politics is because that's part of what's motivating people to be a no, part of that's these why groups. women that's why people in general want a traditional religious thing is control of sexuality it's yeah. less relevant to about lie cheat steal uh, but the strongest correlations with with religious belief tend to be with abortion and homosexuality and non-traditional sexual practices so like you said this suggests that that that's what religion means to them it's a functional aspect okay Anything else? I just wanted to put in a plug. Maybe these tribes should actually try a, a, a male menstrual hut for when the wife has a period. They can just go somewhere to get the hell out of the hut and have their own, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> man cave. And man. <laughs> Send your emails to gmail.com. This is Dave, by the way. Oh, Dave Fletcher is my name Wait. with God Things Like You. <sighs> Let's turn now to some polyatheism. It's easy this time of year to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of the holidays to worry about buying gifts, wrapping gifts, and largely being disappointed by opening gifts. But it's important that we take a few minutes to remember the real reason for the season. Of course, I refer to none other than Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture, whom we honor each December by celebrating the Saturnalia. Saturn is associated with and appropriated appropriated from the Greek god Cronus, uh, but his story is a fine example of the Romans really building off of the Greek myths into something entirely their own. According to the Greeks, he brutalized Uranus, ate his children, and then was defeated by those same kids, and that's about it. That's the story of Cronus. Uh, the Roman uh, Saturn is a much more interesting figure, however. Like Cronus, his story begins with the castration of his father, the sky god Uranus, which is apparently the name the Romans uh, generally used for the god and not uh, Kalos, uh which is the literal translation for the word sky, but it wasn't really used – to describe the god Saturn until um, – or the the father of Saturn until Aww, later in Dave, literature. you're getting as pedantic as the rest of I, us. I, well, I try. Uh, the sickle uh, used to do the deed is still used as a symbol for Saturn, both the planet and the god, and appears in um, the Saturn-inspired imagery of Father Time. See Frank and Ernest's New Year's comic strip for reference. Is that still a thing? Frank and Ernest. Dude, uh, that's like 100 years old. What, yeah, I know. I grew like up on Frank thing. and Ernest. Every year, their New Year's Eve comic is the exact same. 
after emasculating the sky god, Saturn assumes the role of ruler of the universe. Fearing that one day one of his children would usurp him the way he had his father, he, like Cronus, ate his children shortly after their births. All of his children except the last, Jupiter, who would, in fact, grow up to take the throne of heaven away from his father. Yes, the image of a god masticating on newborn children is horrific, and you may be asking, why the hell would we be celebrating a baby eater? And I would remind you that we are atheists, and it's hard to find a good <laughs> baby-eating god to look up to. Actually, it's not that hard. There's, there's a few of them. We need someone to follow, though, you know? So actually, um, the Romans' excuse for Saturn it, um, by saying that him eating the children represents the passing of generations. I'm not sure if passing is the wrong word to use here or the exact right word. <laughs> I get it. Okay. <laughs> are, Saturn, are the Saturn moons named after his kids? Um, I've always wondered why I they came up with the names of Jupiter and Saturn and moons. Well, most of his um, children are other planets. Sense. Like Pluto is um, one of his children and Jupiter is one of his children and so forth. But um, the daughters may be planets of like, Saturn. Um, is it Enceladus and, and Titan and all those? Yeah, Titan, Titan is a weird Europa. one because Titan is no, a, a, a race. Anyway, um, after Saturn is defeated by Jupiter and his siblings, he does not stalk off into the night like Cronus, but instead traveled to Italy where he met up with the two-faced god Janus. Janus took in this foreign deity. Occasionally, the Romans would include reference in their mythology to the fact that their gods had originally come from other cultures, and Saturn is one of them. Um, and Saturn brought with him knowledge of agriculture, which he gave to the early Romans, or I suppose pre-Romans would be more accurate. Even though he was a fallen foreign king, Saturn went on to usher in a golden age for humanity, an age of, where there was no social class and everyone was treated equally. Of course, we now recognize that this is the basest form of communism and understand that while it sounds ideal for people to be all treated equally, it must somehow be evil and undesirable because uh, America, that's why. Keep up that commie talk and it's Uranus that's going to be brutalized. <laughs> <laughs> well, we honor Saturn once a week, only day of the week named by a Roman god, by the, or named after a Roman god, by the way. Four of them are named after Norse gods, and then there's the sun and the moon. Uh, he also gets a festival dedicated to him each December by the Julian calendar. That is, originally it was in January, then it moved to December 17th with the Julian calendar, and then it bounced around a bit in December and varied in length from one day to seven days, depending on who was emperor and how much they liked to party. Under Caligula, the Saturnalia was technically five days, though practically much of the festive aspects were celebrated year round. <laughs> but can, can I jump in here? If you want a, if you want a great little uh, uh, philosophical blast from the past, Seneca has an mm -hmm. essay where he's walking into Saturnalia yep. and he's give, he's basically giving a young Stoic advice 
on how to be a party person and a stoic too. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. You know, walk amongst them, watch their orgies and their drinking. You know, you don't, you don't always have to take part, but you don't have to look away from it either. It's, uh, really good stuff. It's about balance is what it is. Uh, the stoic at the <laughs> orgy. Seneca, Seneca was one of the one stoic who would, uh, who would recommend a good blackout drunk, uh, every <laughs> once in a while as to, yeah. Anyway. Even the Stoics have to cut loose. Yeah. Uh, the Saturnalia, whether Pressure one day bell. or seven, was the biggest holiday of the Roman calendar. The Saturnalia was a return to the golden age of humanity. All social classes were ignored. Even slaves were excused from work during the festival and would sit side by side with their owners at the dinner table. Sometimes their masters would even serve their slaves as a complete role reversal. Gambling was permitted in the streets. A new king was chosen from the crowd of rabble who became the lord of misrule and would command willing Romans to acts of public debauchery and humiliation. Of course, aspects of the Saturnalia bled into Christmas, New Year's, and the Epiphany or the Festival of Fools celebration. If you uh, know the Hunchback of Notre Dame, that's uh – this is true too. This, I'm not making this up. It was a common thing to bitch that these festivals were getting longer and longer and longer and that Saturnalia was coming earlier each year. Saturnalia so is so actually, commercial. I know. Wasn't the right of spring decorations just not removed? <laughs> um, as a god of agriculture and time, it stands to reason that Saturn's festival would be held at the winter solstice. It was also a time of gift giving, long predating the tradition of Christmas gift giving, though Saturnalia gifts were usually crap like candles, the kind of thing you get for your sister-in-law that you don't know very well because, you know, girls like candles, right? It smells nice. There's fire, right? Also, at the time of the festival, in the Temple of Saturn, one of the oldest remaining structures in Rome, though it's seen better days, there's a few columns left, uh, the statue of Saturn would be unbound. You see, the rest of the year, the legs of the wooden statue, which, of course, is no longer there, would be tied as if to say, yeah, Saturn and his golden age was all well and good, but don't think you can get away with that crap just any time of the year. Hmm. Only during Saturnalia would they release the bonds and let the spirit of Saturn roam freely. As a side note, uh, Saturn is also the name of the second largest planet in our solar system. It is a gas giant, and given that it tore up Uranus, that only seems appropriate. Uh, wow. Uh, wow. wow. Rings around it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it. A couple of cheap jokes about Uranus. And Saturn, baby-eating god of time, agriculture, and equality, patron of the best day of the week, and the real reason for the season. Yo Saturnalia, everyone. Yo Saturnalia. Uh, now let's wrap up with a Stranger Than Fiction. Haven't done these in a while. Vampire Threat Terrorizes Serbian Village. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. There's a vampire on the hunt in awesome. Serbia. Um, this article from ABC News says, quote, For the people in a tiny Serbian village, there is nothing sexy or romantic about a vampire. <laughs> in fact, they are terrified that one of the most feared vampires of the area has been roused back to life. 
uh, the people of a Serbian town whose name I have no prayer of pronouncing correctly fear that Sava Savanovic is lurking in their forested mountains of Western Serbia. That sounds like so a cool. supermodel or a political pundit. <laughs> no, not, not a vampire. Savanovic. It's like a tennis star. <laughs> no NPR uh, personality. I'm Sa- Sava Savanovic. Um, the article goes on to say, quote, they believed that he is on the move because the home he occupied for so long, a former water mill, recently collapsed. Ooh. Savanovic is believed to be looking for a new home. I was expecting this to be based on more flimsy evidence. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, um, home where apparently this vampire lived um, ages ago – um, had been a tourist destination for a long time. People had uh, gone on tours never at night, though. Um, they're very superstitious there. It's so superstitious, in fact, that as it started to crumble, because it's a very old building, they didn't dare repair it oh. <laughs> because they would wake up the vampire. Um, so he couldn't even hire a contractor there. <laughs> like, but yeah, then, yeah, could you come out and fix it? Hello? Someone's like using a hammer and all the Hello? And Hello? shaking. <laughs> this is a historical it? landmark. <laughs> so the guy who owns the land where, where this – One uh, hammer, two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> where this water mill once stood said, quote, we were too scared to repair it, not to disturb Sava Savanic. It's even worse now that it collapsed due to lack of repair. <laughs> um, and the villagers are all, quote, taking precautions by having holy crosses and icons placed above the entrance to the house, rubbing their hands with garlic and having a, a hawthorn stake or thorn. And wearing and, scarves. And furiously <laughs> wishing to their monkey paws. Um, they are very paranoid that this um, ancient vampire what is they need back. is a vampire hunter like Abraham Lincoln. No, no. Yes. They, I they just watched that a, movie. Um, Maybe they Daniel have a Day movie Lewis where the guy is like, yes. it has to leave and go into the city and he's totally out of touch like a Dark Shadows or yeah, yeah, like Dark Shadows. And then Tim Burton could remake it and make it much worse. You're not an attractive vampire like Edward or Jacob. Well, I try. I mean, yeah, yeah. I am 5,000 years old. I, I'm awkward. I'm from a rural area. Yeah, of course, this came out as the uh, the latest Twilight movie was being released. No um, no connection there, I'm sure. But uh, Country is- Vampire in the City. I, I, I really like this idea. It's getting better all the time. Hollywood, the first call. goes to his first blood rave and he's not ready for the culture shock, you know. <laughs> never seen shit like that. <sighs> well, um, on that note, we'll wrap it up for now. Now, we will be back um, in January, um, hopefully <laughs> at some point in January. Um, may you all have a happy Saturnalia and whatever else you're celebrating. Yo. In the meantime, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our blog at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Follow us on Twitter slash doubtcast, facebook.com slash doubtcast, youtube.com slash doubtcast. The Carl Sagan uh, video now, which is hilarious. The logos video. The logos with illustrations and, uh, yeah, better cut, I guess. Justin's been doing some really cool stuff on the YouTubes lately. Yeah. Yeah. Justin, I saw your first video response to somebody, too. Oh, yeah. Cool, cool. (laughs) Between the uh, YouTube and fighting with people on Twitter. Uh, Justin is our social media outlet for sure. <laughs> so um, go argue with Justin on Twitter. Um, Don't do that. <laughs> but it's so much fun to watch. Um, and we will be back 
in just a little bit. Happy holidays, everyone. Um, and we'll see you soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>